morning again, Grace Community Church. It's good to see you all. It's good to be back. And let's take a moment and let's prepare our hearts for God's word by prayer. Father, I ask that you would come now among us by your Holy Spirit. Show us what we do not know in your word and make us what we are not now and lead us to Christ. We ask it in his precious name. just want to start by saying how glad I am to be among you as a fellow brother and worshiper of Jesus. And I want to remind you of what I remind myself of, of how encouraging it is to serve so loving a congregation. I'm really encouraged and blessed to uh, be able to be among you and to, to, to preach to you. And it's an, an amazing honor, and I, I just love it, and I want you to know that. Um, I'm grateful for your support in allowing our family to take a break uh, back during July. I'm grateful for Pastor John's joyful service and bringing the word while we were away. This morning, we're going to continue our study in the Gospel of John. And so, especially if you're a guest among us, we're working sequentially through the whole of that Gospel. So we're now in chapter 12. We'll be looking at verses 9 through 26. So if you have a Bible, and I encourage you to open it, turn it on, flip to, get to... John chapter 12, verses 9 through 26. And for those who pray while I preach, this is a good one to pray on. This is a, I love this passage, and I really hope that the Lord makes it clear to us as we go into it. This passage consists of several scenes, and admittedly, we're not going to be paying attention substantially to the majority of this passage. We're going to be focusing our attention on the last three verses. But we're gonna get there. We need to have the context. The context informs those last three verses. So let's review what happens as we get toward those last three verses. In verses nine to 11, the Jews plot to put Lazarus to death. So if, you, if you're looking on, look at verse 10. So, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because, on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. And friends, we, that's a pretty re, uh, ready principle to hand. Those, who are, those of us who have been changed by Christ's power, those of us who have become Christ's disciples, can and must expect to share not just in Christ's glory, but in Christ's suffering. You see how easy it was for the chief priest to say, yeah, Jesus is a problem, and you know who also is a problem? That guy who got changed by Jesus. So if we're going to kill them one, we're going to kill both of them. And then if we look at verses 12 through 19, you'll see that the crowds are looking at Jesus through a different lens as well. They're looking at Jesus through a lens of political, but not spiritual deliverance. Uh, commentators get all sideways over why are they waving palm branches? This is the wrong feast for palm branches. Yeah, that's the point. They're waving palm branches because ever since the Maccabean Revolution, the palm frond was a national symbol for the nation of Israel. It would be like the Star of David today. It was a, it was a nationalistic symbol of national identity. They were passionate. This guy, this guy is going to be the rising star. 
They had a hope for a revolutionary warrior king, but Jesus disappoints their expectations. He purposefully, intentionally fulfills Zechariah chapter 9. If you look at that chapter, you'll see that it's all about a king bringing peace, a king ending war, a king coming in humility. He comes in on a donkey, not a war horse. And verse 16 proves critical to what John is trying to have us see. It says, his disciples did not understand these things at first. So not even his disciples understood. But when Jesus was glorified, which almost universally in the Gospel of John means when Jesus is lifted up on the cross, when he dies, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So friend, the principle there is that any attempt to understand Jesus without reference to his cross, you think about him as just a good teacher, or if you think about him as a nice man, or you think about him as a miracle worker, or you think about him as advancing your social agenda, any attempt to understand Jesus without reference to his cross misunderstands him, and it fundamentally distorts his mission. Think about it. Even famous people like Martin Luther King or JFK, if they suffer a sudden and tragic death, their biographers don't spend half of their book on the last week of their life, right? Instead, their death is viewed as a tragic end, not a glorious climax. It's their life, which was so wonderful, suddenly was unfairly snuffed out. But that's not the picture we get in the Gospels, right? Half the content of the Gospel is dedicated to the last week, and most of it is pointing directly at the cross. The gospel tells Jesus' story as building up to his death and his resurrection. Because you can only understand Jesus by examining it through the lens of his cross. And that's why when the world, meaning the Gentiles, non-Jews, could be anyone from Spain or from Rome or from as north as Bethsaida, when they are on his doorstep, as we see in verse 19, Jesus responds in verse 23 by saying, the hour has come. And for those of you who've been in the Gospel of John, that should shake you. We have seen time and again that Jesus says, the hour is not yet here. My hour is not yet come. For you, the time is always ready, but not for me. My hour is not yet here. We've been waiting and waiting, and now Jesus says, when he hears that the Gentiles have come, and the Gentiles have said, sir, we want to see Jesus, that's when Jesus says, it's on. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And that begins Jesus' final public sermon in the Gospel of John. And he begins it with three paradoxical statements that we're going to study. These statements unpack the glory of his sacrifice, and they give us, in short, the goal of the Christian life. The main point of this passage, the main idea that I want us to understand, is the secret to living a Christian life is not to look inward, but to Jesus. The secret to living a Christian life is not to look inward, 
but to Jesus. First, some of these words have, they get used, but we don't really know what they mean. Paradox. What is a paradox? A paradox, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, is a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. It's a seemingly absurd, seemingly self-contradictory statement or proposition that, when investigated or explained, may prove to be well-founded or true. It's something that at first glance seems as though it just can't be true, but which, after faithful study, careful thought, turns out to be true. Like the saying, you have to spend money to make money. First person that told me that, I thought, you don't do addition. (laughs) But over time, if you investigate it, you go, oh, I see what you mean. Yes, that does, in fact, sometimes prove to be true. (laughs) More appropriately, or we could think within the Christian community, if we think about doctrines, this is more regularly apparent. We can think about the relationship between God's sovereignty, the idea that everything happens according to the counsel of God. And man's responsibility, that man is morally accountable for what man does. And we we look at these two things and we'd say right on the face of it, well, that seems to be contradictory. How can God be sovereign and yet I be accountable? But if you carefully examine scripture you will find that both of these are true. That scripture upholds the both of them. That's a paradox. Something that seems as though it's a contradiction, but upon further examination, proves to be true. So we're going to look at these three paradoxes in verses 24 through 26, and we can summarize those paradoxes in three short points. One, you die to bear fruit. Two, hate your life to keep it. Three, serve to be honored. Die to bear fruit. Hate your life to keep it. Serve to be honored. Now we're going to take these more or less in three parts. And part of the reason is because every time I ever heard this passage preached or this section preached, the way it was preached to me, typically, was here are three things that Jesus wants you to do. And I want us to be really careful. We're going to get there, but you can't just go straight there. These three paradoxes are chiefly true about Jesus. And we need to see that before we're ever going to be able to obey them. So I've broken our steps, and I hope you'll see them as we walk through each paradox. I want to take three steps in each paradox. The first is we need to perceive the primary goal of that paradox. The primary goal of each of these paradoxes is to tell us something about Jesus. Secondly, then, we need to participate in. We need to personalize Christ's fulfillment of each of these paradoxes. So once you see that it's about Jesus, once you see what it tells you about Jesus, you need to see that as being true or involving you, you personally. 
Christians sometimes call this our union with Christ or what it means to be in Christ. And some of what we mean by this is that we need to take the truth of what Christ did and make it personally relevant. It needs to come alive to us. We need to see ourselves as personally affected by Christ's glorious work. And that's so that we can do the third step. And the third step is to practice the paradox in our own life. So you need to perceive that it's about Jesus. You need to see that it's telling you something about Christ. You need to participate in it. You need to see how what Christ did affects you, and then you can practice it. So this passage is first and foremost about Christ. And if you miss that, if you sidestep that, if you try and work your way to Christ or you try and work your way around Christ by merely obeying his paradoxes, you're going to find them not only unattainable, but deeply discouraging. If you try and do what Jesus commands without Jesus in your life, you are going to be crushed by the unattainable burden of perfect righteousness that Jesus calls you to. It is only by surrendering to and rejoicing in what Jesus did and the fruits of his work that they begin to grow in our own life. That's why the title was, or the main theme was, the secret to living the Christian life is not to look inward, to find some hidden strength or reserve, but to look to Jesus. So let's begin. First paradox, ready? Die to bear fruit. Look with me at verse 24. Truly, truly. So whenever Jesus says truly, truly, he's getting serious, right? He's getting serious. This matters. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, obviously, Jesus is not giving a biology lesson on how seeds work. And I'm not going to risk embarrassing myself trying to explain to a congregation with a substantial number of farmers how seeds work. <laughs> I'm not even going to try that. <laughs> what Jesus means is that by burying a seed, its figurative or metaphorical death begins the process of new life. That by burying a seed, its figurative death begins the process of new life. To use a seed effectively, you don't preserve it, right? We don't stick it up on our mantelpiece and admire it. Hey, look at that beautiful seed. That's going to produce so much fruit this year. Wait, let's wrap it in duct tape. We want to preserve it for the whole year. You know what's better? Let's put it in the safe. No one will get to it. Like, that's not what you do with seeds. You, you don't lock it up like a treasure. You plant it. To bear fruit, the seed has to be used. It has to be consumed. It has to be used up. So now... While Jesus is not speaking exclusively about himself, meaning he's not only talking about himself, he is, however, speaking primarily about himself. So just take a moment and look at that paradox with Jesus as the object of it. He is the seed that unless he dies and is buried, that unless he dies and is buried, 
will not produce the necessary fruit. If he did not die, he would remain alone in some sense. There would be no fruit of his work. So now we have to ask, well, okay, why must he die? And what is that fruit? And I know that for many of us, this is familiar territory, but we need to remember, Christ must die because the wages of sin is death. And we have all sinned. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We are all justly condemned under God's righteous wrath. But God is not only just. He is just, but God is merciful and gracious. He is not willing that sinners should perish, but that they should turn from their wicked ways and live. And so God sent his son to die in sinners' place, to take the punishment that we deserve, to purchase us back at the cost of his own life. So the fruit of his death then is the church. Christ is the seed. His death is necessary to save sinners. And the fruit of that death is the church. You and I, fellow believers, all fellow believers, we are the fruit of Jesus' death. The singular purpose of Jesus' life and death was to purchase for himself a people ransomed from every tribe, nation, and tongue to know and enjoy and proclaim the glory of God forever. In one sense, why did Jesus come to earth? To die, to purchase for himself a people for his own possession. In Acts 20, 28, we get a picture of how the Bible treats this sacrifice, this work that Jesus did on the cross. Acts 20, 28, Paul is speaking to the Ephesian church leaders as he's departing, and he tells the leaders that they must care for the church of God. Why? Which he obtained with his own blood. What was the purchase price for the church? The blood of Christ. He bought her with his blood. The church is precious. Why is the church precious? Because she's so beautiful? No, because Christ died for her. She is worth the cost of her husband. Jesus died to ransom every member. To what end? Why did Jesus do this? To merely possess them? To have them like a trophy on his wall? Friends, the church is not the trophy wife of Christ. He didn't purchase her just to look at her. No, listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Paul says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So that's why he purchases the church. It's one of the reasons. But there's more. It doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just purchase us because he loves us abstractly. He bought us not just for a better life. He didn't even just buy us for a good life. He bought us for a righteous life. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the fruit of Jesus' death is more than our deliverance from death. 
We were purchased for a new life of righteousness. But friends, it doesn't even stop there. This act is not even just confined to our behavior. It goes further. The death of Christ purchases us, purchases for us an entirely new internal character. The death of Christ purchases for the church a clean conscience. Listen to Hebrews 9, 13 through 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. So if the old way of presenting sacrifices made you physically able to go and worship before God, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Friend, Jesus' death doesn't just purchase you back from the penalty of your sin. He purchases you back not only from the power of your sin, he purchases you back from the memory of your sin. He gives you a clean conscience. He makes you his own. He makes you beautiful. He fills you with his love. The death of Christ is glorious because it more than redeems us from sin's penalty. It frees us from a guilty conscience. It both enables and it empowers us to live an entirely new and better life. But friends, you need to see Jesus as the grain of wheat that fell to the ground and died. And you have to see that you are the fruit the direct result of that death. If you don't see that truth, you will not be able to embrace it. You'll not be able then as a consequence to, to obey it. You will not be able to enjoy it. If you don't see Christ dying for you and you as the fruit of his death, you won't be able to delight in the paradox that he gives you because we have to go beyond seeing the truth. Perception is important. We need to perceive that this is about Christ, but we have to go beyond that. We need to savor it. It must not just be true abstractly. I'm sure Jesus died for someone, somewhere, to save them from a guilty conscience, to give them a righteous life, to make them his own. It must become true of you. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. This is the fuel for Paul's ministry. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus, the, the, this first paradox is teaching us that Jesus bought you for something more than yourself. Jesus bought you for something more than yourself. Your life has to be about something more than just trying not to die. And I say that to Americans who it seems in the culture broadly do everything possible to avoid death. Friends, Jesus bought you for more than a life about just trying not to die. Do you want to fail in life? Make it your singular ambition not to die. And still more seriously, friends, your life has to be about something more than yourself. 
Instead, if we willingly lose our life, figuratively or literally, as Lazarus might have, in pursuit of Christ, then because of his amazing work on the cross, not only will we truly live, but our lives will bear fruit. So if you see from going from perceiving that it is about Christ, when you participate in the reality that Christ affords you in his sacrifice, that allows you to live a life whereby living a life of self-denial, your life produces fruit. You can obey the paradox, but it has to flow out of Christ. So what does it mean then for us to die? Must we all die as Jesus died? If the paradox is literally true of Christ, well then, how does it become true of us? For some of us, yes. For some of us, yes. Brothers and sisters across the world today will die, literally, for the preciousness of Jesus Christ. They will love their lives not unto the death, but they will love Christ more than that. So yes, for some of us, the cost is our life. But for most of us, this expression means that we need to die to ourselves. It means that in a society obsessed with its own comfort, we need to be about the well-being of others, even at our own expense. It means that parents must continually die to themselves for the good of their children. It means that husbands must continually die to themselves for the good of their wife. It means that business owners need to die to themselves for the good of their employees. And if we die, especially to ourselves and to sin, in order to live to Christ and for righteousness, what sort of fruit can we expect? If the death is unto ourselves primarily, then what sort of a fruit do we see? Well, we can expect to reap a harvest of souls. Faithful parents who put themselves to death to raise up their children may in God's grace live to see believing children. Faithful friends may turn a friend back from sin, as Jude describes, and back from death. And besides all that, we will find the contentment that the psalmist describes in Psalm 16, verse 6. He says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance from the Lord. When you see yourself in the sacrifice of Christ, at least some of the fruit that you obtain is the understanding, the contentment that what you have received from Christ is good. You have a delightful inheritance from the Lord. In sum, if we unite ourselves to the life and the death of Christ, we will find the joy that comes from living no longer for ourselves, but for others. We will find godly Christian humility, which rolls right into the second paradox. Second paradox is hate your life to keep it. Look at verse 25. Jesus says, whoever lo loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now again, just like with the first one, if we take Jesus' words rigidly, if we read them literalistically, we're going to miss the point. And just like seeds don't actually die when you bury them, hate is a strong word that Jesus uses to get our attention. 
Think of how he speaks in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, unless you hate your mother and father and brother and sister, you're not worthy to be my disciple. That's a hard saying. It's a hard saying because we don't naturally grow to hate our own family, right? Ordinarily, in most circumstances, we love them, just as we would naturally love ourselves. What Jesus meant in Luke 14 is we learned last week, honestly, when we were talking about how Jesus has to be the highest priority of our life, Jesus means that he needs to be more valuable to us than anything else, even our own family. If our own family gets in the way of our discipleship, Jesus says, you have to love me more than your family. You need to follow me, even at the loss of your family. And here Jesus uses the word to mean something similar. He means self-denial, rejecting self-love as our highest priority. Look at how he sets it in contrast. If you love your life, if you set your life in this world as the highest priority, you're going to lose it. Everyone who loves their life, by which he means those who prioritize their own comfort, those who prioritize their own wealth, those who make decisions that bring them the most glory, they're ultimately going to lose it. And conversely, the one who lives so fervently, not for this life, but for the next, he could be said to hate this life. That's how Jesus gets to that expression. I think Calvin probably put it well. He says, he who under the influence of a moderate desire of the present life cannot leave the world, but by constant constraint is said to love life. But he who despising life advances courageously to death is said to hate life. Not that we ought absolutely to hate life, which is justly reckoned to be one of God's great blessings, but because believers ought cheerfully to lay it down when it impedes them from approaching to Christ. I love that last line. Even if it was hard to follow in the beginning, Calvin comes clear, right? Believers ought cheerfully to lay down their life when it impedes them from approaching to Christ. That's what he means to hate your life. Calvin has discerned what is of greater and more enduring value. The martyrs are described in Revelation 12, 11 as those that love not their lives unto their death. It's not someone who hates their own life for its own sake. It's someone who sees the more enduring value of the life to come. Someone who does not shore up treasures here where moth and rust destroy, but looks to the next kingdom. Someone who so rejects living for the sake of their own life and their own well-being as their chief priority is someone who, by definition, is others-focused. If you reject your own life and your own comfort as your greatest priority, you are going to be an others-focused person, a humble person, not someone who thinks less of themselves, someone who thinks of themselves less. And Christ, then, is the greatest example and the true author of godly humility. You see, this paradox builds on the last one. Just as we had to look at it and say, where's Christ here, and then where am I in Christ so that we can obey Christ, so also here. We, we look at this and we go, Christ Where's Christ in this? Remember how we 
concluded that one of the fruits of a life of Christ-empowered self-denial was the joy of godly humility. This paradox is about how Christ-empowered humility is the basis for Christ-empowered self-denial. If you want to study more on this, Philippians 2 is your chapter, the whole thing. (laughs) But we'll just look at a few verses. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 8 at the moment, speaking about Jesus. It says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see? He hated his own life in this regard to keep it. One of the glories of Jesus' death on the cross was how it was a living picture of absolute, true, living, and loving, godly humility. Jesus was not thinking chiefly of himself when he went to the cross. This isn't to say he isn't thinking of himself at all, but he thinks not chiefly of himself. He thinks chiefly of his Father's glory, as we'll see in this very chapter, of his Father's will, of his Father's reward. He thinks of the joy and the beauty of his bride. See, I remember, I remember a lot of things about my wedding, but one of the things that I remember was paying for the honeymoon. And I had already come through seminary with what for me was a fairly substantial amount of debt, and my wife was walking out of college, some debt. But I tell you, friends, I did not for a minute sit there and say, like, oh, I suppose I have to go and have a lovely time with my beautiful new bride on a beach somewhere. I didn't. I wasn't Eeyore about it. Like, I was overjoyed. I didn't care what it cost. I just wanted to be with my, with my wonderful wife. That's what I wanted. Friends, Christ, when he looks at the cross, does it cost? Yes. Is it an immense cost? Yes. But Hebrews doesn't say, like, well, he endured the cost and made it through. <laughs> it says, for the joy that was set before me endured the cross, despising its shame. He was looking at you. When we get to John 17, he's not just looking at Peter's face. He's looking at your face, and he's saying, I'm going to go to the cross for that one. I'm going to win that one. I'm going to pull that one out of the pit of hell and make him or her my own, and it wasn't grievous to him. Listen to how Paul introduces this passage where it speaks about Jesus' humility, bringing him to obedient death. In verses 3 through 5, he says to the church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Friends, it will never be possible to die to yourself truly, until you see Jesus place your good and his Father's glory above his own interests. It will not be possible for you to die to yourself until you see Jesus place your good and his Father's eternal glory above himself and go to the cross for you. And until you believe that Jesus has, in fact, secured your eternal good, 
until you believe that he actually did it, that it wasn't just a hopeful act on his part that maybe, just maybe, you might be saved, but that it was a particular act on his part so that you will be saved, and he holds it and he keeps it for you. You'll never be able to stop striving for it. You'll never be able to look for the good of others. Because you have to taste and see Jesus first secure your good at his own cost. And then you have to trust Jesus to keep it no matter what happens. If you are ever going to be able to willingly sacrifice for someone else's good. So what might that look like when we work it out? The only illustration that came to my mind at the time, and I'm not very good at illustrations, I think, sometimes, was like if you, if you go out, to, let's say, to a, you're invited to go out to a restaurant and you get to see the dessert menu and you see some desserts there, but your wife leans over to you, or like my wife would lean over to me. If she leaned over to me and she said, yeah, I mean, it's an okay menu, but there is a sticky bun waiting for you at home. I might, I might pass on the desserts because there's a better one waiting. And friends, as we go through this life, the world is going to incentivize you. Sometimes it's going to come to you by saying, the way of Christ hurts a lot. Go the way that doesn't hurt. <laughs> but sometimes it's going to come to you and it's going to say, this thing that we've got right here, right now, is sweet. And Christ says to you, I have prepared something better for you. It is absolutely better. So don't taste this now to ruin your appetite for what's to come. What might this all look like when we work it out? Well, it might be that Christ is calling on you to make a financial sacrifice for another person's good. It might be that Christ is calling you to use your schooling, which might have profited you substantially in a way that draws attention to his glory or the gospel. Take your engineering degree and use it to get into a closed country that won't receive you for any other reason. Or maybe it's to make seemingly small sacrifices, which are not in fact small, for the good of those in your household. Spending less time at the television and more with your children. Pressing through the difficulty, the awkwardness of gathering the family for worship in a culture that thinks that's ridiculous. All of us are hungry for joy. All of us are hungry for delight. All of us are hungry for affirmation. But the irony is that if we pursue those things for their own sake, we end up without them. If we love our life, we lose it. But if we seek the good of others out of the abundance of the goodness of Christ, then we find it. And that's where we find the third paradox. And really, we need a whole other sermon time to do this third one. So i just letting you know it were, it's an inadequate treatment right from the get-go. <laughs> Serve to be honored. Look at verse 26. Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now, of all these paradoxes, this is probably the most pointed at the disciples, as it were. It's the most pointed at us. It, it weighs most heavily on us. If you'll forgive my paraphrasing of a paradox, he says simply, friend, to be my disciple, you have to stick by me. But if you stick by me, 
my father will reward you. The pathway to eternal reward comes through humble and faithful service to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So as I was looking at these paradoxes, I thought the first paradox is about significance. We want our lives to mean something. The second paradox is about security. If there's a good life, we want it to last. We want it to be safe from loss. The third paradox is about satisfaction. We want our work, if it means something, if it's going to stick around, we want it to not be in vain. We want it to be recognized. We want a reward for what we've done. And that's not fundamentally a wicked desire, curiously enough. Because Jesus knows this. Jesus is the sort of person he would confront you. If if wanting a reward was just fundamentally wrong, he would have just come out and said it. He would would have come out with the paradox of like, people who want rewards, don't get them. But what does he say? If you want to follow me, you have to stick by me. If you stick by me, my Father will reward you. He offers the best reward that you could ever imagine, which is God's pleasure. So what motivated Christ as he went to the cross? Because this seems to be the thing. This seems the thing that ran underneath it. Why did he go to the cross? Why did he hate his life in that sense? He tells us both here in verse 28, if you let your eyes just zoom down, you'll see Jesus praying. He says, Father, glorify your name. He's going to say another purpose in chapter 17 in his prayer, verses 4 and 5. He says, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So he wants wants the Father to be glorified. He wants to be glorified with the Father. And then the third one In that same prayer in chapter 17, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they, his disciples, also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So Jesus lived in perfect pursuit of God's glory and the church's good. And critically, he obtained both. You don't have time for me to go off in ecstasy about how he has done so. He has obtained both. He obtained his father's glory, and he obtained the church's good. Jesus can offer you God's perfect favor. You can't earn it. You could live your whole life to try and get it, and you would never get it. But Jesus obtained it for you. At enormous personal cost. And friends, God's reward is the only reward worth living for. All other rewards are going to erode. You could put your name on a building, but the building is going to fall down. You could have your name on a trust, but it will eventually run out of money. You could be remembered in history books, but eventually there'll come the day where they start, you know, twisting the idea of what you even were. Eventually, everything fades and falls down. The only joy, the only reward worth having is hearing God say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Because the joy of your master never ends. It's 
infinitely satisfying. This, participating, perceiving what Jesus has done, is the secret to practicing the Christian life. He says, if you follow me, you have to stick by me. And we know because of Lazarus that that sometimes means losing things. Sometimes that might mean losing our own life. But Christ's resurrection is a guarantee that if we die in the way of discipleship, and if we put to death ourselves in the way of discipleship, he is able to, and he will, raise the dead. He says, I already laid down my life so that you can truly live. I have gone before you so you can be sure of what's to come. And if you follow me, I will give you the best reward, the joy of my Father. So friends, in some ways, what a Christian wants is similar to the world. Not the same, but similar. To live forever, to make a difference, to find honor. But the pathways to that end could not be more different. The world tells you to go through the platform of self and pride. But Christ calls us through humility, sacrifice, and death. And the difference between these two is not a particularly more altruistic person than another. The difference between these two is a glorious vision of God. Those who see and savor in these paradoxes the person and the power of Christ they are enabled by his spirit to find his life and consequently his reward. The secret to living the Christian life is not to look inward, but to look to Christ. So don't leave today, please, saying in your heart, I want to be a better person. I want to be a more humble person. Say in your heart the question that set this off. Sir, I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus. I want to see the one who died, the one who rose again. I wish to see and to know the one who gives the only way to find true joy, life, and honor. I want to see him. I want to follow him. And I want to be with him. Now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. This is a prayer drawn from the Puritan prayer book, if you don't know it, the Valley of Vision, it's just, it's so fitting. So let's pray it together. O oh Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the Valley of Vision, where I live in the depths, but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let us learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess everything, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter thy stars shine. Let us find thy light in our darkness, thy life in our death, thy joy in our sorrow, thy grace in our sin, thy riches in our poverty, thy glory in our valleys. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.